continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Sup, y'all? <laughs> joined tonight, I'm Justin Burt. Joined tonight, Dr. Chris, the Chu Manchu. That's me. Chris, it's been a long time. How are we doing? Dude, I don't know. It's December already, at least when we're recording this. Like, I just feel it just came upon us so quickly. The year went by fast. We're winding down. This will be coming out in 2023. So starting the year off right with a wonderful conversation tonight. Our guest is Dr. Megan Verdet. She's here to discuss pediatric hypothyroidism. But before we get into that, Chris, can you remind us about the show? Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Megan Fraudette, who is a pediatric endocrinologist and clinician educator. She's assistant professor of pediatrics at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine, shout out, and lives and works in Rhode Island, state that really punches above its weight class. She is actively pursuing research and better understanding racial and ethnic disparities in diabetes technology in pediatric type 1 diabetes. She's also passionate about Narragansett at Beach's This Old House, a TV show I learned about in this episode, <laughs> Dell's Lemonade, something that Chris learned about in this episode, and of course, learning and talking about endocrinology. In this episode, she teaches us what to do when there's an abnormal thyroid newborn screen, common causes of hypothyroidism in kids, and how to trick a baby into taking levothyroxine. Guys, you'll find our conversation so riveting, it'll wake you out of your myxedema coma. Ooh. Uh-huh. Hyperthyroidism. Yeah. I'll throw them off. <laughs> Dr. Megan Fredette, thank you for coming to the show. Welcome to the Cripsiders. Thank you for having me. Ooh. Because we're an informal group, we always like to start. Is it okay if we ask you by uh, call you by your first name, Megan, for the duration of the show? Of course. Beautiful. Friends are ready. Excited to have you on. Excited to have some Brown representation, the the <laughs> Brown Medical School colleague. Welcome. I would love to get to know you a little bit better in a very public atmosphere with all these listeners. They would love to get to know you better. Can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself and kind of introduce yourself to Cribsiders Nation? <laughs> so I'm Megan Fredette. I am originally from Rhode Island, and I'm Rhode Island all the way. You know, I'm back. I'm a mother of three, seven and under, so very busy. And I love endocrinology and love talking about it. So this is perfect for me. Amazing. Do you have a favorite Rhode Island unique? I feel like there's so many things with like the the stuffies, the Dell's lemonade. Do you have a favorite Rhode Island thing? I love party pizza, like the red pizza that's not hot. Yeah. Love that. And Dell's lemonade, of course. This is very confusing, Chris. Rhode Island pizza is actually garlic bread with tomato sauce on it, unheated. <laughs> so there's no yeah, cheese? Yeah, it has a little Parmesan, a little Parmesan, oh. but not like formal cheese. It's called a party pizza. It's usually at like kids' parties, but uh, and you buy it at a bakery rather than a pizza shop. Interesting. Rhode Island's a cool place, man. We got to eat, eat down here. Yeah. A lot of unique I'll have eats. to come out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's see. One of my favorite questions. It's been a while. We haven't recorded in like forever. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Um, Let's go with um, what is the best advice you've ever received as a learner or maybe as a teacher or maybe somewhere else in your career that you've heard? 
Uh, so many things that have, you know, made a mark on me. One of the things that sits with me is something that one of my mentors at Brown um, has taught me and like just the importance of the role of a physician in actually making a diagnosis and that that's really our primary role. And if we don't have a diagnosis, just being aware of that, not just initiating treatments without knowing what you're doing. And that really sits with me a lot. The other thing that I think of a lot is I watch a lot of This Old House, big fan of Tom Silva. And he always says, measure twice, cut once. And I think of that for two reasons. One, because I want to be conscientious, but also measuring 16 times cutting once isn't good either. (laughs) So just like there's limits. So twice cutting once is is good. Awesome. I like that. I've never... <laughs> you have to think about it both ways. Silva's a good mainstay. Oh, my gosh. If I could meet one person, Tommy, all the way. <laughs> Guys, I'm not going to lie. I, I don't know what we're talking about. I don't know this old house. I don't know Tom DeSilva. I feel like... Tommy Silva. Silva. Yeah. Tommy He's Silva. like the main like carpenter contractor yeah. on that show. Amazing. All right. I have to. I have some homework to do. This is great. He's the one I learned about a, these special glasses that click with the magnet on the, in the middle because he always uses them. And now I use those as my regular goggles when I'm on the wards and stuff. So it's awesome. Pretty cool. Wow. He is changing lives, I can tell. <laughs> uh, this is great. Maybe on that, on that line of thought, I'm always looking for a new book or piece of media consumption. I just finished Americana as a picture of the week, which is a great book if anyone hasn't seen it. Um, Megan, any any book recommendation that you think our listeners should listen to or things that um, trainees should read at some point in their career? Mm. Or TV show for I those. Re- <laughs> for yeah, those I mean. Yeah. Or Taylor Swift album. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love those. <laughs> I love Taylor Swift. Try to get the tickets. Uh, Unfortunately, didn't. Ticketmaster. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, anything that brings you joy. I think reading is supposed to bring you joy. And the types of books that I like to read are usually classics. My favorite book is Little Women. Uh-huh. I reread it from time to time. I also love Pride and Prejudice. But yeah, I think in terms of medical related books, the one that I think back to still is Complications. Um mm. I read it before I went to med school, and I still think about chapters from that book at times, Um, like that case of necrotizing fasciitis in it. Like, it still comes to mind, and it it still sits with me even so far along. So that's a good one to read. These are great. Excellent choice. Yeah, I love the throwback to the classes, too. There's there's always a few classes that I've reread. Maybe I should do it more. It's a nice, uh, nice downtime. (laughs) Especially at Christmas time um, and in the holidays, Little Women's a good one. I can see that. All right. Should we jump into it? Let's jump into it. Um, let's get started with a case from the Cashlet Children's Hospital. And so we have Tyra Herman, uh, who is a 10-day-old Ed's full-term infant girl following up in primary care just for a typical visit. She had an uncomplicated prenatal course, regained birth weight since discharge. She's breastfeeding well. Mom says breastfeeding is easy. I have no problems whatsoever. This kid is doing great. It's thriving. No issues at all. But her newborn screen results came back and it popped up. And we have a TSH of 75 and a total T4 of 2.1. And the TSH of 75 and the total T4 of 2.1 both have a red exclamation mark uh, next to them. So we are worried. So we've started with kind of a give me case, but can we start by just kind of talking? We're talking about congenital hypothyroidism. What is it? When do we think about it? What's your kind of brief thought on, on this patient of what you're explaining to mom about what's going on right now? So when I hear this story and I hear those labs, my heart starts racing because this is something that when I get this call, I start to get worried because in my mind, the time is now ticking 
the main issue with congenital hypothyroidism is that T3 and thyroid hormone itself is so important for neurodevelopment. So the more and more time going without thyroid hormone in this baby's body, the potential neurodevelopmental effects are coming. So as soon as I hear this, I'm thinking I need to get this baby on levothyroxine as soon as possible. So what congenital hypothyroidism is, is absence of thyroid hormone or low thyroid hormone levels because of an issue at the level of the thyroid gland. So what happens there is if your thyroid gland is not working for whatever reason, and I'll get into what the potential reasons are, your thyroid hormone levels go low. So that's why the T4 level here is listed as in response to that as a typical feedback, the body senses that it's not getting enough thyroid hormone and so the TSH, the thyroid-stimulating hormone secreted by the thyrotrose of the anterior pituitary, goes high. So that shows a picture of primary hypothyroidism or low thyroid related to a problem with the thyroid gland itself. So we get these calls from newborn screen typically to us usually around four to five days of life. So 10 days is a little bit late. So I'm even more worried about this baby. When I talk to parents about congenital hypothyroidism, sometimes I'm calling them on the phone without having met them before and telling them that there was an abnormal newborn screen and, you know, trying to establish myself as a person who's real and concerned about their child and that I want them to go for repeat blood work. So whenever the newborn screen is abnormal, we need to get serum testing to confirm. Once the blood is drawn, if the level is extremely abnormal like this is, I would start levothyroxine without having the results back. Then when the results came back, I would decide if I'm going to continue it or not. Very likely this child would need levothyroxine because the levels are so abnormal. But there are cases where it's more mild and I would say, okay, now we've just gotten one dose of levothyroxine, but we don't actually need it. No big deal. I'd rather have that and have an extra day or an extra moment on levothyroxine than not have it. So a couple of follow-up questions. One is, is this not an issue in utero because um, the baby's getting thyroid hormone from the mom? And my next follow-up question is, how, how often do we find the newborn screen is inaccurate? Like, is it overall, you know, I know you, you want to do follow-up screening, but it sounds like you are sort of treating it most of the time as accurate until you get those follow-up results. Is there ever a time when it was abnormal or wrong? And is, what are reasons for the newborn screen to be wrong? Usually, it's not that the newborn screen is necessarily wrong. It's just that there was a transient appearance of hypothyroidism, but the baby recovered on its own. So all babies in the first, after they're born, have a significant TSH rise. Um, this is normal physiology, and then it comes down over time. So sometimes if the newborn screen is taken too early, that can cause a false positive. Oh. Um Sometimes there's just a transient, like some babies, maybe their T4 takes a little bit to come up and their TSH takes a little bit to come down. And then when you repeat it, it's actually normal or much more reassuring. And then you follow it over time off levothyroxine. But for the thyroid hormone level itself to be low and the TSH to be so high here, over 40, that's very likely to be a true level. And so I'd be much more concerned about that. Most guidelines would ask you to start levothyroxine for a TSH that's over 40 on a newborn screen without serum labs back. And so for congenital hypothyroidism, where you mentioned the neurological effects can be pretty devastating, you want to 
identify and address this early on. How do we typically catch or make the diagnosis of congenital hypothyroidism? Is it always on newborn screen? Do some people have almost a false positive on or a false negative on newborn screen and have to be detected earlier? Can you tell us a little bit about how this typically presents and how it's typically caught? Usually it's picked up on newborn screen. The newborn screen is extremely reliable. In New England, we rely on a T4-based screen. So some states rely on a TSH-based screen. So if you rely on a T4-based screen, what happens is the bottom 10% of that day's thyroid levels get reflexed to a TSH, and then those abnormalities get reported out to the pediatricians if there's abnormalities. What's good about a T4-based screen is that you're not going to miss central hypothyroidism. So central hypothyroidism isn't a problem with the thyroid gland itself. That's primary hypothyroidism. Central hypothyroidism is related to a problem within the brain, usually associated with multiple pituitary hormone insufficiencies, not just thyroid hormone access being dysregulated. And if you just measure the TSH, You could, in states that use a TSH-only based screening, that could actually appear falsely normal. So if the T4 is low, the TSH should be high. But in central hypothyroidism, the T4 would be low, but the TSH could look normal or it could be low. So it's inappropriately normal. So if you do a TSH-based screen rather than a T4-based screen, you could miss central hypothyroidism. But in general, um, it's a very, very good screen. The times where we need repeat screening is in premature infants. So babies who are admitted to the NICU who are very low birth weight get continuous screening over time. And that's because as their axis matures, you actually have a delayed TSH rise. And so you pick up on congenital hypothyroidism often at a later time in premature infants. So they get screened like every two, I forget exactly what it is, but it's like two weeks, one month. And sometimes we pick them up with abnormalities later on. And sometimes it can be a mild form of primary hypothyroidism that actually doesn't meet the screening criteria, but that may not get picked up until someone randomly checks thyroid hormone at some point as an infant. Because it's so mild, they may not have the significant effects that we're worried about with true severe primary hypothyroidism. So we, we, you said a couple of times about checking thyroid levels and stuff like that. And you, you know, we've talked about TSH and total T4. I know we have a couple other different types of things that we call thyroid hormones that um, I was wondering whether you could clarify for us because I know we have TSH, which comes from the pituitary, right? And then we have the T4, which comes from the thyroid. But I also know there's a total T4 versus free T4 and a T3 and a free T3. Can you drill in a little bit about what each of those are and what are we, which of those are we actually checking? Should we be checking, I should say? (laughs) In general, I mean, it's such a confusing topic. And I remember as a trainee, I was like, what is with all these levels? So a TSH is the most sensitive test to evaluate thyroid disease that we have. So the way the axis is regulated is that if the free T4 is slightly low or slightly high, the TSH is going to pick up on that right away because the negative feedback is such a beautiful system. So if you are worried about a primary thyroid problem, like you think someone has their making too much thyroid hormone because of their thyroid, or you think they're making too little thyroid hormone because of their thyroid, you only have to get a TSH. That'll tell you everything you need to know. If the TSH is high, you know that their thyroid levels are a little bit low for the body. 
if the TSH is low, then we know the thyroid levels have been a little bit too much for the body, whether or not the levels look that way in that moment or not. So the TSH is a very sensitive screen, and it's one of the levels I almost always get. The one time you do not want to rely on TSH, and I've already mentioned this, is in a problem related to central hypothyroidism, because you're going to miss it. If you get a TSH alone, you're going to miss central hypothyroidism if that's what you're worried about. So one of the times that actually comes up is if someone has growth deceleration and you're worried they may have growth hormone deficiency. If you're doing a workup for growth deceleration or short stature and you're planning on looking at growth hormone markers, you don't want to just get a TSH. You want to get a free T4 as well because you're thinking we could have a central issue, so you also want to look for central hypothyroidism. So that's the TSH. The free T4 is the first line thyroid test itself that I get in almost all cases. It looks at true thyroid hormone and it's a really good estimate. Free T3 I almost never use um, and it's not a test that I order. The only time I've used it in the past is in an extremely sick child who had Graves disease who we were trying to monitor levels in the exact moment, and we, because the binding was abnormal in that child because they were septic, we had to rely on free T3. That's literally the only time I've ever looked at that. Total T4 is a test that is a very good test, and that's actually what is measured on the newborn screen itself. But T4 is bound to thyroid binding globulin, so it's affected by things that relate to binding globulins, proteins. So if you have nephrotic syndrome and have low protein levels, you have low TBG, your T4 is going to look low. If you get a free T4, it would be normal. The other time this comes up is in people who are using birth control pills or any form of estrogen that increases your TBG, and so your T4 looks like it's high. Your free T4 would be normal, your TSH would be normal, but the T4 looks high. I've gotten several referrals for that issue. The other time this comes up is in TBG deficiency, which is an X-linked trait, so typically present in males, and it's basically that the T4 would list as low on the newborn screen, but when you get a free T4, it's normal. And if you were to measure the TBG, it would be low. So the T4 is a good test, but you have to have along with it some measure of binding if you really want to interpret it well. So to me, it's not as useful because of that. So I usually go with the TSH and the free T4 instead. The T3 is a good adjunctive test. So T4 and T3 are both thyroid hormones, but T3 is actually our active hormone. The time endocrinologists use the T3 is usually in hyperthyroidism or high thyroid states to get a good assessment of what the body is seeing in a high thyroid state. And it's a reliable measure of how that patient may be feeling, if they're feeling hyperthyroid or not, if the T3 is high or not. That's pretty much the only time I actually look at T3 is in people with known hyperthyroidism. And most systems, our system in brown, if you get a TSH, it's a, the test is called TSH reflex. If the TSH is high, it actually reflexes automatically to get a free T4. So the system's very smart, developed by an endocrinologist or with some <laughs> input by an endocrinologist. If the TSH is low, it actually reflexes to both a T3 and a free T4, because that's what an endocrinologist would want to look at. So that's a very smart system. Um, what other tests? We often get antibodies. So we'll talk a little bit later, I think, about autoimmune hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. The abnormal antibody in that is a thyroid peroxidase antibody or a TPO antibody. That's the most sensitive test. 
Another antibody that's sometimes positive is a thyroglobulin antibody. And in Graves' disease or high thyroid states that are due to an autoimmune reaction with an antibody against the receptor, um, we actually look at a thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin or a TSI. The other potential antibodies we would look at is other antibodies that bind to the TSH receptor, like a TRAB or a TBII, basically a thyroid binding inhibitory immunoglobulin. And one, the TRAB just looks at is something binding to the receptor or not. And the TBII looks at is it binding and inhibiting. And that can be important. The TRAB can be looked at as both actually can be looked at as a measure of Graves' disease, um, but usually we look at the TSI. If a mother has one of these blocking antibodies and it gets passed along to a, a child, that can be a form of transient congenital hypothyroidism in an infant, actually. And so this is really great. And I think, you know, we've talked about the major forms of the diagnostic labs and to kind of try to do some teach back as far as the, the big ones or the, the highest yield seems to be the TSH to measure the response to what the thyroid is putting out, exactly. uh, which is going to be very sensitive unless there's a, a brain injury or central hypothyroidism. And the free T4 seems to be a great way to measure the activity of the thyroid hormones because you're not having to factor in the thyroid binding globulin, kind of like an ionized calcium rather than calculating the calcium exactly. from an albumin. Amazing. And so <laughs> when focusing on our patient who has abnormal findings or focusing on a general child who has a abnormal newborn screen, it sounds like the most common is primary thyroid disease, but we could have central hypothyroidism. We could have a transient antibody coming from mom. What's the typical breakdown of the types of congenital hypothyroidism? And is one far more common than the other? Like when there's a newborn screen flag, is it primary thyroid disease until proven otherwise? Yeah. So congenital hypothyroidism is typically thyroid dysgenesis of some sort. So a problem with the formation of the thyroid gland, either agenesis, it didn't form at all, hypoplasia, it's too small, or ectopic, like it formed in an abnormal location along where the embryologic path of the thyroid is. So it's at lingual, at the base of the tongue, or it can be anywhere along the neck, essentially. That's the most common. 85% of cases are due to thyroid dysgenesis. So if you're going to make a bet about what something is with an abnormal newborn screen that looks like primary hypothyroidism, it's going to be thyroid dysgenesis. The second thing that we think about um, from a primary hypothyroidism perspective is thyroid dyshormonogenesis, which is basically that the thyroid hormone isn't made well. The thyroid is in the right location, it's the right size, but the enzymes aren't working well and aren't working properly. And there's a number of reasons that that can happen. The other much more rare thing is central hypothyroidism, which we talked a little bit about. Very rare, usually associated with multiple pituitary hormone insufficiency. So a baby that's sick, has adrenal insufficiency, hypoglycemia, growth hormone deficiency. If it's an XY child, maybe a micropenis. Multiple things may be going on in a child who has central hypothyroidism. 
And then the last piece we think about is maternal blocking antibodies. If the mother was on high doses of antithyroid meds for Graves' disease, um, that can pass over and can cause a transient hypothyroidism. Or more mild cases that end up essentially being false positives that we kind of think we're just over-treating to be conservative, that also goes in that transient box. We don't really know what it was we were treating, but it's not something that was extremely serious, although we didn't know it at the time. So the rates of congenital hypothyroidism used to be like 1 in 3,000 to 4,000, leading to more like 4,000. And now we're talking about numbers like 1 in 2,500. But we think it's because of increased sensitivity of pickup, not that the disease is actually getting worse. So you said that, you know, one of the most common causes of uh, primary hypothyroidism is is dysgenesis. And then also, we, we were talking a little bit about central hypothyroidism. Now, does this mean that we should also be expecting some sort of imaging workup? So if it's primary, we're looking at thyroid ultrasounds. If it's central, are we doing some sort of head imaging? Is that part and parcel of the workup after you, you've already started thyroid augmentation? So that's, that's an awesome question. When you are looking at primary uh, thyroid disease, you eventually want to get some sort of imaging. In the past, they would get imaging before starting levothyroxine just to figure out exactly what's going on. Now we don't hold our treatment because it's not going to really change our treatment course. But eventually, you want to figure out what is going on. So a thyroid ultrasound is going to tell you if there's a thyroid that's at the base of the neck. And if it's not there, then you know something's going on. Or if it's small, you know that's probably what's going on. So a thyroid ultrasound is a really good screen. And that's what I typically do. I do often wait until children are older to do that just because the test is easier. You could also do a nuclear imaging scan to try to truly assess where the thyroid tissue is in the neck and try to figure out exactly where it is. Because on an ultrasound, you're not going to see a lingual thyroid. The nuclear imaging scan will show you exactly where that thyroid tissue is if it's in an abnormal location. One of the tricky things about nuclear imaging scan is that if you have blocking antibodies from mom, it's going to look like you don't have a thyroid at all. It's going to look like thyroid agenesis. So you kind of need a combination. You need to think about factors. Maybe one test isn't going to be enough. If you have a normal ultrasound, a normal scan, and your thyroid levels continue to be abnormal, then we know it's likely dyshormonogenesis. Of course, if we pick up central hypothyroidism urgently, we need to be evaluating for other hormonal deficiencies, which could cause severe issues like adrenal insufficiency, growth hormone deficiency, both of which can cause severe hypoglycemia. Adrenal insufficiency can cause hypotension and shock. So we're looking for that. And of course, they would get a brain MRI as well. Um, and they would probably also get an evaluation of the eyes to look for optic nerve hypoplasia, which is a spectrum which includes endocrinopathy often. So that, that would be going down a different pathway of evaluation. So for a congenital hypothyroidism patient, let's say we, we have the confirmation that we feel confident it's a primary thyroid disease issue. Are there specific risk factors for congenital hypothyroidism? Is it similar to adolescent or adult thyroid disease with a family history of thyroid disease or autoimmune disease? Or are there certain risk factors that make someone more likely to screen positive for thyroid abnormalities? Awesome question. Usually it's something that happens randomly. That's a random thing and usually isn't genetic and doesn't happen in another child if the family were to have another child. So 
with congenital hypothyroidism, it's one that we've talked about, we worry about, we want to get quick diagnosis and treatment. With congenital hypothyroidism, it's one that we've talked about, we worry about, we want to get quick diagnosis and treatment. But I imagine this isn't the only time that a person in their life can be diagnosed with hypothyroidism. And so when I have a, a child who's maybe a adolescent or even a, a young adult who's diagnosed with hypothyroidism, when did they become hypothyroid? And is there a age demographic of this other kind of more older acquired hypothyroidism? So acquired hypothyroidism is most commonly due to autoimmune hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which comes in a few forms. It can be either goitrous, where you have a goiter, or atrophic, where you don't have a goiter. That's the most common cause of acquired hypothyroidism in young children and adolescents. And the risk for autoimmune hypothyroidism is higher as you get older. The risk for autoimmune hypothyroidism, there's also often a family history of some sort of autoimmune type disease. Not always, but you know, autoimmune diseases can run in families. It doesn't have to be Hashimoto's itself, but it could be another autoimmune disease like lupus, vitiligo. The ones that often run with thyroid is celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. So much so that our patients who have type 1 diabetes actually have screening thyroid labs done every single year to evaluate for the onset of hypothyroidism. But yeah, we can see it in all ages at any time that autoimmune disease can hit. Should be after six months, but classically we see it in childhood and then the risk increases in adolescence. It is more common in females than males, but we do see it in both sexes. And maybe because I've seen two patients with this specific sequelae, but are there types of autoimmune thyroiditis or sequelae of groups that are things like diabetes, hypothyroidism, and adrenal insufficiency, or other groupings of autoimmune endocrine disorders? Yeah, so there's um, autoimmune polyglandular syndrome is basically groupings of autoimmune disorders. And the autoimmune polyglandular syndromes often include Addison's, which is primary adrenal insufficiency, and another autoimmune disease. So certainly they can be linked in groups like that. When I hear about someone who has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, one of the things that I'm thinking when I'm initially evaluating them in their low thyroid state is, do do they have coexistent adrenal insufficiency? The reason this is so important is because if someone has coexistent adrenal insufficiency, their low metabolic rate induced by the hypothyroidism maybe is keeping that little bit of cortisol in their body just going. When you start that levothyroxine, it's going to eat, uh, the way I think about it is it's going to eat up that last piece of cortisol and it could put them into an adrenal crisis. Oh. So, you want to make sure when you're about to start levothyroxine on a patient that you think has autoimmune thyroid disease that they don't have coexistent adrenal insufficiency. So it would likely be, if you're thinking what autoimmune disease is, so it would be an autoimmune adrenal insufficiency, which is a primary adrenal insufficiency. One of the main symptoms of that is hyperpigmentation, and I won't get into why that is, but hyperpigmentation of the body globally, and you can also see it in areas of friction, and also in the mouth, the gums. And if you see that, you want to make sure that you start your treatment for adrenal insufficiency before starting your levothyroxine to make sure they don't go into crisis. I have seen people go into crisis after starting levothyroxine. And when you want to make sure that they don't have adrenal insufficiency, is looking 
for that bronzed, hyperpigmented skin sufficient? Or are you doing like a court skim test on everyone that you start levothyroxine or Definitely not. Yeah, I usually do a clinical exam and I'll ask some questions. If someone tells me that they're having unexplained weight loss or if they're having vomiting in the morning or if they're not sure if they look more tan, I will get an AM cortisol before I start levothyroxine. And you had mentioned early on with congenital hypothyroidism, again, we want to make sure to protect neurological disease. If we have a 16-year-old who's presenting with autoimmune Hashimoto's uh, uh, thyroid disease, is there the same level of urgency or what's the long-term sequelae of acquired hypothyroidism? Why is that important to treat? Yeah, that's such an important question. In infants, the big urgency is because of neurodevelopmental effects, and that's because the brain is actively forming during that period of time. We think after age three or four that that's less of an issue. So the teenager is less urgent from the neurodevelopmental aspect. What I worry about, not so much with the 16-year-old, but with the elementary school child, especially if this hypothyroidism may have been missed for some time, is that they may have missed a period of growth there, which we may never actually get back. So one of the saddest things that I sometimes see is someone who's been growth decelerating for some time, and you can actually see the onset of the hypothyroidism by the time, by the age that they decelerated. And when you get a bone age x-ray to look at how old their bones are, their bones are stuck at that age. Once we start levothyroxine, their bone age rapidly advances, and we kind of miss that time period for growth. And often they end up shorter than they could have been. So the sad part about missing hypothyroidism for me is mostly growth, but also people can feel terrible when they have hypothyroid symptoms. So you can feel very tired. You can be gaining weight unexpectedly, usually not large amounts, but gaining weight unexpectedly, constipation, dry skin, brittle hair, brittle nails, feeling too cold all the time bradycardia, mild hypothermia, yeah, and then the growth, yeah. short stature, yeah. Um, yeah. growth deceleration. And in um, menstruating females, it, in menstruating people, it would be um, abnormal periods. There are some more unusual findings too. That seems like one of those uh, mistakes. It's amazing that it's a mistake that if you miss it, you can go back with imaging to say, this is the year that Chris missed the hypothyroidism, that she was nine. You had Four years to find it, Chris. And and it's bad for the patient too, obviously. But yes. as a provider, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, you feel bad. I feel terrible when it happens. And it's usually yeah. like something as simple as didn't look at the growth chart that year or mm. thought it was a blip. And then the next year we forgot to look, you know, like it... it yeah. Swiss I can model. see how it happens. Yeah. The other yeah. more rare things would be um, abnormal lipids. So an elevated LDL, you know, we're getting a lot of lipid screening in kids. Mm. Mm-hmm. If you yeah. have an elevated LDL cholesterol or triglycerides, that can be from severe primary hypothyroidism. So if wow. it's not expected with a family history, you want to try to get a TSH to screen for that. The other things that are more unusual that I've seen is abnormal liver enzymes, like a cholestatic jaundice type picture. I saw someone picked up because they had an enlarged pituitary gland on imaging done for a headache Mm. because you get your feedback, your TSH gets activated, your pituitary gland Mm -hmm. looks big. Mm High TRH can actually stimulate prolactin, so you can have hyperprolactinemia or high prolactin levels. In a person that has breasts, you could be um, having galactorrhea. Mm. In a person who has estrogen and breasts, you can have galactorrhea. 
And um, oh, the other one is you could see someone look like they have precocious puberty, actually. So you could have a child who has testicles where their genitalia look like it's not pubertal. Like the penis mm-hmm. doesn't look virilized, there's no pubic hair, but the testicular volumes are increased. Or you could see a child who is menstruating but just started breasts or who has breasts unexpectedly. And the reason would be is because TSH and FSH share a common unit. And so TSH at very high levels, which would be high in primary hypothyroidism, can actually cross-react. Huh. And it can look like precocious puberty. But the weird thing is you have precocious puberty with growth deceleration and a delayed uh, bone age. Precocious puberty should have growth acceleration and an advanced bone age. So this is called Van Wimbach syndrome or Van Grumbach. I forget. I was say, what a pearl. This is like, <laughs> wow. this is like a, a stump the doc called. and the pediatric she, she's uh, much, noon conference or She's something. pretty much <laughs> telling me that I don't. Screen with TSH enough for all enough, my yeah. abnormal things could that I'm seeing. Could be TSH. Could be a common cold. Could be primary hypothyroidism. Oh gosh. I get a lot of TSH. Yeah. <laughs> so I know we want to sort of move into talking about treatment in a little bit, but I want to ask one more question before we get there. Are you able to highlight any disparities we're seeing, especially like social disparities in identification, treatment, and outcomes of children with congenital hypothyroidism? So in congenital hypothyroidism itself, there's no data to support that there's known disparities in outcomes. I believe that part of that is because the newborn screening is given to everyone regardless of where they're born and what their situation is. However, it doesn't mean it's not underreported. Levothyroxine is something that's given on a daily basis as a crushed tablet to an infant requiring you to pick up once a month to get this medication and it has to be given, you know, at a certain time, not in combination with other medications. The kids sometimes spit it. It's not an easy thing. And endocrinologist appointments early on can be every three to six months. Blood work in the first six months can be every one to two months. So I'm sure in individuals who have a lot going on, a lot of disadvantages, are struggling with money, struggling with finances, have to work. I'm sure that there's issues sometimes for all people, but probably more exacerbated if you have some struggles in life. It's hard to do this. So I'm sure there's underreporting of potential, I'm guessing there's probably potential likely less visits, could be that it takes longer to get thyroid hormone levels in the right place, but no, it hasn't been reported. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I know in adults, there is some data that thyroid disease is less well managed. The NHANES um, had a runoff on adult hypothyroidism, and they saw that um, older adults were more likely to take their medication, and women were more likely to take their medication, and if individuals who are Hispanic were less likely to have good outcomes, but that wasn't with pediatric data, and that was just that one group. Interesting. And so talking about treatment, we let's uh, transition back to our patient, Tyra. Oh, Tyra Herman, TH. I like it. Um, we have the patient who- uh, <laughs> I, didn't get th- I didn't get that either, so- It took me a second, yeah. Um, we uh, have a patient, let's say I am the on-call doc for my practice, and this is a critical value that I get that the TSH is quite high. And 
maybe it's 75, maybe it's it's 35, maybe we can do a couple different examples. But as a PCP, when I get this, what should I be doing? Should I just immediately repeat labs? Should I be sending this patient to the emergency department? Should I feel comfortable starting levothyroxine myself? Should I secure chat you and ask what should I do? What's the advice for a primary care doctor and maybe someone, especially in kind of a rural area that maybe doesn't share an office with an endocrinologist, core net steps for that first abnormal newborn screen? So how it usually works in our academic medical center is that if it's a mild abnormality, like the TSH is between 20 and 30, for example, that would go directly to the pediatrician, it would bypass an endocrinologist, and the recommendation would be just for a repeat. So in that case, you would just repeat it with serum studies. I would do it as soon as possible. And if the serum studies are normal, nothing to do. If the serum studies are abnormal, you're not sure contact an endocrinologist to help you interpret them. If the levels are really high, at least in our state and in New England, they contact an endocrinologist directly, and then mm-hmm. we're, we're responsible for, for making sure mm-hmm. that child gets seen. Um, if you're in a rural setting and you're not sure what to do, endocrinologists are extremely collegial. You know, <laughs> If you're not sure what to do, you could contact pretty much any pediatric endocrinologist in your area. They have a major focus on trying to get these kids treated, and they will definitely help you out. But certainly, a pediatrician in a rural setting can start levothyroxine in an infant, and in many cases would be the one starting levothyroxine in an infant. So there are a few things to know about starting it, which I can tell you. Great. And before that, you had mentioned 20 to 30 is that range of mild repeat. And then if it continues to be, you know, 28, or if that initial test is above 30, are there criteria of this is when you you pull the trigger on treating? Mm. It's really tricky after that, because when the serum levels come back, if they're not listed as completely normal in your system, I'd probably check it out with someone. Because mm-hmm. even if it's less than 20, if the child's 10 days old, that's still a little bit high. I'd want to see it come down to normal over time. So that's something that the endocrinologist would help you with to say, you know, I want you to get repeat levels in another week. If they're not coming down, we're going to be talking about starting levothyroxine. If they are coming down continuously, then we don't and we keep monitoring. Um, so between, you know, if the TSH is between 9 and 20, that's kind of that limbo area where it's not normal. It's better, but we still have to follow it down to make sure it completely normalizes. And we have no risk of neurologic issues with, with our TSH in that, in that range? In that range, as long as the, the T4 is okay. As long as the free T4 is okay, the, gotcha. you don't have a risk. Um, of course, you're not going to let it go above 20 or anytime there's a low. If there's a low free T4, even if the TSH is 15, you're, you're starting. Okay. No question. All right. That's good to know. And so let's do it. Let's start. You know, we're, we're a rural doc. Right the bullet. We uh, to do it. They're let's able, start some you know, the endocrin- Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to. We want to start while we're waiting for the endocrinologist to to call us back or for their clinic to open because it's Friday at eight p.m. and we're we're new to rural Wisconsin, yeah, so yeah. we don't have a lot of subspecialty contacts yet. How do we? Or we can even just say this is an endocrinology clinic at this point. Mm-hmm. What What is your thought? You know, how do you start levothyroxine? How frequently are you monitoring? You know, what's their goal to show that treatment works? And is there any patient counseling on how to take levothyroxine that's an important part of it? Yeah. Talking about how to give levothyroxine is actually the majority of our visit. So half of our visit is explaining what's going on. And then the other half is talking about how to actually give levothyroxine. 
So levothyroxine is given as a crushed tablet. That's the way it's given. The liquid formulation at this point is not considered reliable and doesn't have data behind it. So we always give it as a crushed tablet. The way I instruct families to do it is basically however that tablet gets into the baby's mouth, it gets into the mouth. So like I, you crush, I usually say to crush it between two spoons. You can then take a wet, small finger and pick up the little pieces and put it into the corner of the mouth. That's one option. And a lot of families find that to be the easiest. Another way you could do it is crush it between two spoons, put it in a little medicine cup with some water, a little bit of milk, put it into a syringe, then get it into the baby's mouth. Then go back and make sure all those pieces are out of the medicine cup and that all those pieces are out of the syringe. And so you might have to do that a few times. Basically, all those pieces just need to be in the mouth, however that happens. Sometimes people will ask me if they can just put it in the bottle. That is never a good idea. One, because the tablet will go onto the sides of the bottle, the baby may not get it. And also the, if the baby doesn't finish the bottle, then they don't go their levothyroxine. Another way that I've seen parents do it is crush it and put it into the nipple just alone without the bottle with a little bit of milk and then have the baby suck from that. But basically you get the idea, just the, the pill has to get in. And of course, if there's a G-tube, you would just flush it through the tube with a water flush after. Oftentimes you wanna, they tell you, at the pharmacy that it's supposed to be given first thing on an empty stomach. Mm-hmm. And that is the ideal. Is it possible for a baby to have an empty stomach at any time? Mm-hmm. No. Maybe after so in babies, we just give it, we give it. Like people gotcha. will be like, oh, maybe I should wait an hour after a meal, two hours before. It really, it's not going to work out. And the bottom line is this medicine needs to get in every single day. So I don't really the food piece um, with infants because it's just so important that it gets in and we have enough to worry about. There's some medications that interfere with the absorption of levothyroxine, like iron-containing medications, calcium-containing medications. So if your baby's on those medications, you want to separate them by at least four to six hours. So usually I say give it levothyroxine in the morning and then give those medications at mm-hmm. night. If the baby's on soy formula, that can also interfere with absorption potentially, or a lot of fiber-containing medications, that can interfere potentially with absorption. But if they're on that from the beginning, you're kind of titrating your dose to meet that. Uh, But if they are on a different formula and then switch to soy, you want to check more frequently to make sure you're still meeting your targets. Gotcha. Now, is is daily dosing the only way? Like, is is there a way we can do, like, larger doses separated by larger durations? It has to be daily dosing, unfortunately. Yeah, it's daily dosing. You can do it IV. So we've had some babies who can't take by mouth for whatever reason, usually in the NICU. And the IV dose is 80% about of the oral dose. But yeah, it's a it's a daily medication, which, which can be tricky. And can you talk a little bit about dosing and monitoring of how often you're going up, how often you're checking the TSH? So for congenital hypothyroidism, you start at 10 to 15 micrograms per kilo per day. For a 3 to 4 kilo infant, that's usually going to look around 37.5 to 50 micrograms. So if you were to choose 50 micrograms for an average size baby, that's probably going to be good. And the tablet comes in 50 micrograms. So the tricky thing about the tablets is that there's a 25 microgram tablet there's a 50 microgram tablet. So if you want to do in-between doses, you either have to give a 75 microgram tablet that's cut in half or a 25 microgram tablet where you do one and a half. So we're playing these games all the time. Oh, interesting. And for our little babies, we have to do like a half tablet um, three times a week or, you know, to try to meet our 
our targets for the for the week. So after we start um, in congenital hypothyroidism, we would check two weeks later because we want to really see those levels come down, especially we want to see that free T4 in the upper half of normal range. That's the big thing that we want to see, and we want to try to see that TSH come down into a normal range. Then we'll repeat every one to two months for the first six months typically, and then three to four months for the next um, until the baby's three years old. After age three, because the majority of the neurodevelopment is done at that point and the growth is not as rapid, we usually go to every six months. If we make a dose change, then we have to repeat it four to six weeks later to see the impact of that dose change. And for a patient with congenital hypothyroidism, so we tried a newborn screen, is this something, are they going to have hypothyroidism for the rest of their lives to the genesis, or will they eventually grow enough thyroid tissue to have a functioning thyroid without being dependent on levothyroxine? It really depends on what the etiology is and if it's a transient form or not. So if you end up doing all of your testing and the, and the initial TSH was 500 with no T4 and you eventually get your ultrasound and there's no thyroid gland, they're on it. That's it. But there are more subtle cases. The thyroid gland is in the normal location. The initial TSH was 30s. They never had to go up on their dose. In those cases, at three years old, we consider a trial off. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we would you know, talk about the risks and benefits with the family, what the clinical course has been so far. And if we trial off, we'll trial off and repeat four to six weeks later and see how the baby's doing. If it becomes abnormal again, we would just restart at the last dose. If it stays normal, we repeat a few months later and see if it continues to stay normal. And if it does, they're in the clear. Like for good? Will we never have to check again? Or is this something I would check like at puberty or like some other time that we have to worry about? It shouldn't be that you have to check again. Remember my Tommy Silva check twice. (laughs) I'm a little more conservative. So what I usually do is four to six weeks, then 12 weeks, then sometimes I check it a few months later. But really, if you were able to tolerate several months, it it should not be something that 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 comes back. Fantastic. You don't have to check again until they develop autoimmune polyglandular. <laughs> exactly. Syndrome. Eventually they may yeah. develop a thyroid <laughs> problem, but that's yeah. that that's unrelated. Gotcha. So that's all congenital hypothyroidism. In the person who develops hypothyroidism as a child, the dosing is different and it's dependent on the age. Per kilo, the dosing is higher at a younger age than at an older age. So an adult or a teenager that's completed growth would be on 1.6 microgram per kilo per day. Remember, as an infant, we said 15. So you can mm-hmm. see over time, it gradually comes down mm-hmm. and there's guidelines on that in up-to-date and, and different resources if you were looking at that. But anytime you start levothyroxine in someone with autoimmune thyroid disease, you would repeat four to six weeks later to see the impact of that, that dose initiation. Beautiful. And so going back to our case, we check in on Tyra, and sure enough, we start her on levothyroxine at 15 micrograms per kilogram per day. She continues to feed and grow well. Her thyroid function tests are very closely monitored over the first three years of life. Medications are titrated and do very well. At three years of age, sure enough, she's trialed off levothyroxine. She has follow-up thyroid function tests with normal limits, at which point the levothyroxine therapy is discontinued, and she's an excellent example of a recovering congenital uh, <laughs> hypothyroid, yeah, yeah transient congenital um, hypothyroidism, and so hooray! <laughs> so with the remaining time, because we have short on time, this is going to be perfect though for the next maybe five minutes. Uh, maybe Chris and I can ask each uh, one or two lightning round questions of thyroid issues that come up in common practice 
uh, and maybe how we should address. And so I'll take the first lightning round question, and that's, we have a child hospitalized for something like pneumonia, and uh, we listened to the podcast and said we should probably check a TSH just to make sure that's not what's causing the pneumonia, and it's abnormal. Abnormal TSHs in uh, acutely ill patients. What's the, what's the good word? <laughs> oh man, this is this is every consult, which is good. <laughs> like we want to be thinking about endocrinopathy. I do not like to check thyroid testing in um, children who are ill because they are going to look abnormal. So there's a state called the sick euthyroid. Some people call it euthyroid sick or non-thyroidal illness syndrome. Either way, it's basically the thyroid levels look abnormal, even though the function of the thyroid in general is fine. And how it looks when it depends on how sick the patient is. But in the sickest cases, it looks a lot like central hypothyroidism. So the T3 is low. That's the unifying factor in this. The free T4 can also look low. And the TSH could look low or normal. So it looks a lot like central hypothyroidism. Mm Mm-hmm. If you were to get a test called a reverse T3, which we never do, it would actually be high. But yeah, if someone is sick, try not to send thyroid levels. Sometimes it comes up because someone would be like hypothermic when they're extremely ill and they send thyroid levels and then it becomes very confusing. Also, when you're recovering from a major illness, you can have a blip where your TSH looks high. It doesn't usually go over 20. So if it's over 20, I'd be a little more nervous, but it can be quite high, up to 20. And usually what we will say in those circumstances, as long as the free T4 is looking normal, is just repeat in a few weeks and almost always it, it normalizes. So we call that recovery after sick euthyroid where the TSH looks inappropriately high for a little bit. You know, every time I hear a reverse T3, I think it's an Uno card or something like that. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Sometimes we do check it um, just to be like, no, no, this is why. Yeah, so I really try not to get thyroid studies in sick patients. If someone was extremely hypertensive and tachycardic, like maybe I would check thyroid studies in that case. If someone has a goiter, that would be a good time to check thyroid studies. <laughs> or if someone has like needs a constipation clean out because they're so constipated, maybe that could be something. But in general, um, especially if someone's um, severely ill or in an ICU, um, try to hold back from sending thyroid testing because it, it's going to look abnormal. Great. All right. My next uh, lightning round question is, how do we define hyp- subclinical hypothyroidism and uh, should we treat it? Subclinical hypothyroidism, by definition, is um, an elevated TSH with a normal free T4. And usually people who have that, they are typically asymptomatic. What's tricky is that symptoms of low thyroid, we talked about them before, fatigue, sleeping more, depressed mood, feeling you know cold, constipation, dry skin, those are really vague symptoms, honestly, and you may be feeling those things and that could prompt a thyroid check. And so it's really tricky when you see a level that's abnormal and you're feeling these things and you're like, how could this be subclinical? I don't I don't feel well. So it is a tricky state, but typically it should be asymptomatic because the thyroid levels themselves are normal. Typically, we do not treat subclinical hypothyroidism unless the TSH rises above 10 and stays there um, persistently. Sometimes we treat at a lower level if the person has antibodies consistent with Hashimoto's and we kind of know it's going there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, if it's subclinical, it may normalize or stay subclinical for a long period of time. And so it's not of benefit to start levothyroxine at that moment. Nice. 
let's say we have a 17-year-old in front of us or a precocious patient. We're starting on levothyroxine. Are there any side effects that we should be counseling on? Yeah. So when someone has severe primary hypothyroidism and you start at a full dose, they may feel like not well. They may not feel right. Um, They could have school issues. They could be the kid that was just hanging out in class, being quiet, and now they're you know, being more active so they could start having behavioral problems. The other thing that you can see if you start full dose levothyroxine in the setting of severe primary hypothyroidism would be pseudotumor cerebri, so a severe headache. So in very, very severe cases, I'm talking like TSHs in the hundreds, 500s, I've seen Mm. TSHs in the thousands. Sometimes I'll start a half dose for a little bit and then before moving up to a full dose. And in children who are still growing and were missed for a long period of time, we always run into this issue that we know the bone age is going to advance rapidly. We know we're going to miss this opportunity for growth. And so we go back and forth as an endocrinology community about how to help them. Should we give them growth hormones? Should we go up on the level so slowly so we don't normalize it right away? Should we suppress the puberty, give growth hormone, and go slowly? We've tried all these different things. And in case reports, some things have worked, some things haven't, but there's no consensus. So I have seen providers go slower if someone has severe short stature, and and that's the worry. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in general, um, there aren't really side effects of this medication because you're just replacing the hormone that you're missing. Fair. Unless you give too much, then you would have the opposite symptoms. And I like to think of it as like drinking 10 cups of coffee, jittery, diarrhea, losing weight, not sleeping. And maybe as a follow-up to that, um, there's stories of levothyroxine intentional overuse? Is that something that you see frequently where people are using it almost as uppers or weight loss? Is that a common thing that we see in Luckily, we don't. Um, but it's something that we think about sometimes if we see a TSH that's suppressed and we don't have another explanation. Um, but no, it's not something that I see often, but it's something that I think about and certainly could come up. Great. All right. I, I think this is perfect. And I think that, uh, well, let, let me, okay, sorry, one more Pregnancy. How does uh, pregnancy affect TSH levels or or thyroid diagnosis and management? Yeah. So how I talk to my patients, most of my patients shouldn't be pregnant um, as a pediatric endocrinologist, but how I talk to them is that you don't want an unplanned pregnancy when you're on levothyroxine um, and you have thyroid disease because in the early stages of your pregnancy, your thyroid requirements go up a lot. And so oftentimes you'll have to be one and a half, two times your initial dosing. And so you want to know around the time that you're getting pregnant so that you can escalate your dosing as much as possible um, to protect the fetus and the development of the fetus. So the dosing is totally different in pregnancy. The doses are much, much higher in pregnancy, and it has to be monitored and regulated very closely. Beautiful. This has been great, Megan. So we've talked everything from diagnosing on newborn screen to diagnosing autoimmune later on in life, how to address it, the urgency, how to even up titrate medications and things to look out for. For the listeners who are learning about hypothyroidism, what are your main take-home points that you as a pediatric endocrinologist wishes everyone knew before they did a pediatric endocrinology consult? I think one thing I want you guys to know is about the urgency of an abnormal newborn screen for thyroid and that you want to act on it right away. Um, Also, that piece that we talked about with autoimmune thyroid disease and coexistent adrenal insufficiency and the importance of thinking about that. One thing that I didn't mention, but 
would be the same sort of situation. If someone has multiple pituitary hormone insufficiency, they could also have adrenal insufficiency and hypothyroidism, but they're both central. So if someone has multiple pituitary hormone insufficiencies, you have the same situation that you want to make sure you don't start levothyroxine if they're adrenally insufficient and not on treatment. So you would want to test for that. In that case, you would have to do a, a stim likely to see um, if they're able to make that um, cortisol well. And you would want to start hydrocortisone before starting levothyroxine, same situation. So just warning about the risk for adrenal crisis anytime there could be coexistent adrenal insufficiency and hypothyroidism, either because it's central or because you have two autoimmune diseases. And then I think the third thing to think about is just, you know, look at your growth charts at every single visit. And if someone is growth decelerating and their weight is normal, think about endocrinopathy. Love it. Yep. Uh, final question, you know, is there anything that you'd like to plug, anything that you'd like to send our listeners to, any resource or fun YouTube channel, anything that uh, you'd like to plug while you're on the show? Uh, not really. I think just, <laughs> you look, I, my plug is look at the growth charts. That's, oh, that's a good one. Growth charts. That's growth a great charts plug. are my growth plug. Uh, Document and look at them at every visit. Uh, amazing. Uh, growth chart plug is great. It's a great pick of the week. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been wonderful grateful for all your expertise and and teaching us about hypothyroidism and i think this is going to be really well received by all of our listeners so thank you for your time uh thanks for coming on i had fun thank you guys this has been another episode of the cribsiders it's for the kids get the show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter man that's always been a mouthful on our website at www.thecribsiders.com we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show notes on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsetters at gmail.com, and we promise we will respond. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Maggie Ivanova, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you, and good night. Maybe we should get a mastodon. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.